Uh, it's going to seem very cliche for me to recommend this book, but I'm doing it anyway. It is The Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. Now, this is special. There is a reason why I'm holding up this exact version of it, and there's a reason why it's not two volumes. It's only one. This was the version of the Institutes that Calvin wrote for the French. So, you know, he's writing the Institutes and he writes them in, in Latin. And he's writing them for the academics. He's writing them for uh, the people who are in Geneva, the people who are the nerds. But he also wrote a version of it for Christians in France. And if you remember at the time, Christians in France lived under a, an oppressive Catholic regime, Roman Catholic regime. Uh, they were very oppressed. They were people who suffered greatly. And so Calvin wrote this. And if you read this book, one of the ways that it differs from the big two-volume version that, that uh, you know, I've got a few copies on my shelf. One of the ways it differs is it doesn't have the polemics in it. Now, polemics basically means he's arguing with somebody. This book, this version doesn't have him going, Servetus is wrong, and here's why he's wrong, and this other guy over here has a bad view of Christ, and forget about these people. He doesn't do that in this version. In this version, he's just being productive and positive and constructive. And so if you want to read a leaner version of Calvin's Institutes that was just translated like five years ago, so very modern translation, very readable, you can get this version. It's from Banner of Truth Trust. Their binding is so good that it probably will still be here in 70 years if there's not a great conflagration. So I'm going to pass this one around. You can take a peek at it. You can take a look at it. See if you're tempted by it at all. I think it's like 20 or 30 bucks. So it's also cheaper than the two-volume version. Uh, just a wonderful book. So that's my, my recommendation this morning. I realize I've been, I haven't really been recommending old books. So I need to pick some old stuff every now and then. The last time that we met was in the spring, I think it was May, and we finished the book of Joshua. And we talked about the fact that Joshua is the successor of Moses. He's the one that, that leads the people into the promised land, into Canaan. And so this morning we start the book of Judges, and it occurs to me that I need to give you a little bit of a refresher on what sort of prefaces the book of Judges. So... Let's talk about Israel's history just for a moment. Remember BC, all the, num all the big numbers mean older, and all the new number, all, all the smaller numbers mean newer. So in 2090, roughly, <coughs> Abraham is uh, called to Canaan. So that's around 2090. In 1876, uh, Jacob and his family go to Egypt. In the 1400s, so almost 500 years past, 1400s, you'll notice I'm a little more vague there. That's on purpose. Um, you have the people of Egypt where Israel escapes. Israel is rescued from Egypt by God. And then in approximately 1440, Israel actually goes into the promised land. Israel actually takes the promised land. So they enter the promised land in 1440. And does anybody remember the time, uh, what the date would be for the united monarchy when everybody's under King David? Yes, Don. Your notes from last time said about 1071 to 931. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Whoa. And you could almost think. See, look at that. I'm, he, he took notes. This wow. is intimidating now. Yeah. I left the apple on your pedestal over there. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, we don't take apples now. We take iPhones. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, roughly. I mean, if you want to be rough about it, about one thousand is when David's king. Yeah, give or take, you know, a few years. But David overlaps with 1,000. So that means this. That means that between here and here is the time of the judges. Israel actually goes a really, really, really long time without a king. They had, I mean, 400 years of its existence, older than the United States, right? It, older than the United States, Israel went without a king. Um, that's a very long stretch of time. I don't think that's, I don't think that's exaggerating. And that's the time period we're in right now. So we are in Israel before the kings actually uh, exist ruling Israel. So, um, so what happens at the end of uh, the book of Judges? Well, here's what happens. If you remember the end of Joshua, Joshua dies. Get to Judges, first chapter, he's alive again. Joshua is alive. And so the first two chapters are Joshua, he's alive and they're addressing the conquest of Israel in Canaan. So remember, you know, you know, you've got the land of Canaan here, and Israel enters, and they each have their own sort of assigned areas that they're supposed to go to. And you start to read about their conquests, if you want to call them conquests, just very weak conquests. Basically, they just move in. They just kind of move in. There's not a great deal of conquering done in the book of Judges in the first few chapters, because... Um, the book of Judges basically shows us a world where they don't conquer, where they don't experience any conquests. Um, how do I introduce Judges? Judges is a book with two introductions. It is a book with two conclusions. It has 12 judges, six major mud- judges, six minor judges, and an anti-judge, Abimelech. Um, we'll talk about Abimelech. I was going to say he's great, but that would be a stupid thing to say because he's not great. Um, This is not a book of heroes. You read the book of Judges, you know, and you're not reading a book of, oh, look how great everybody in this book is. This is a book of sinners repeatedly over and over rescued and delivered by God in spite of their sin and in spite of their rebellion. Could you imagine the United States surviving uh, in a context without leaders for 400 years? Like, it feels like we're falling apart and we've, been, you know, we've actually had leadership, you know. And judges, you know, they're, they're, they exist even longer. Uh, of course, they don't do very well by the end. So, One of the things we see is that Israel did not conquer the land. Uh, after Joshua dies, Judah does their best at conquering the land. In fact, they do the best job at conquering the land. Remember, Judah's in the sort of southern part of the territory. And they do a decent job. Um, if you read the narrative and, it, and you read about the specific passages about Judah, what you see is over and over again, God comes up. They pray to God. They talk to God. They ask God for direction. And God delivers them. God helps them. Um, you read the other 12 tribes and you read their narratives. God is absent. God isn't in their passages at all. Um, he's just conspicuously absent when he's conspicuously present in the Judah narrative. And so over and over again, what happens as you read the narrative of the 12 tribes? They let the inhabitants of the land live. And then it'll say, they live among them to this day. 
is what the author of Judges writes. They live among them to this day. And when you remember that Judges is a narrative that lasts over 400 years, they're basically saying 400 years later and they still haven't gotten rid of these people. And so this is a book, this book is them living in the midst of compromise and living in the, in the consequences of compromise. Um, and you will see exactly how, how awesome that is and how well that plays out. Um, if I was going to give, if I was going to break this book down, uh, I would break it down like this. I'd break it down into three parts. Uh, part one, what's part one? No Joshua in Israel. Chapters 3 through 16, judges in Israel. Chapter 17 to 21, no king in Israel. All right, so no Joshua, judges, no king. Big summary. A lot of stuff happens in here. In fact, this is mostly where the action takes place in the book of Judges. By the way, a few years ago, I preached through the book of Judges, and I did it in the evening service, and after it was all done with, uh, a while passed, and I asked Amos, I'm not preaching, so I can mention his name. I said, Amos, what's your favorite book of the Bible? He goes, Judges. How many little kids say Judges is their favorite book of the Bible? Well, I think if you read about the death of Eglon, and you were a little kid, you'd be like, this is the awesomest book in the Bible, (laughs) because it's super disgusting. (laughs) Um, so here's one of the things that's characteristic of judges one of the things you notice as you're reading through judges it is this book it's just a big cycle judges is just this big cycle Um, and it just keeps repeating itself over and over again from the inside out so what happens israel does evil what happens then as a result god sends oppression from the surrounding nations because they did evil and then what happens Israel cries out to Yahweh. And then what happens? God raises up a deliverer. And then what happens? God sends his spirit upon the deliverer and the deliverer rescues them. And then what happens? There's a period of peace. And then what happens? Israel does evil again. And then what happens? God sends an oppressor from surrounding nations. And for 440 years, that's the cycle. And it is, and this book is basically that cycle playing itself out each time with slight variations, you know? A good song uses some, uses, has a steady tune, but there's gonna be a variation from the beginning to the end. And that's what you see in Judges. It's a song. This is a, the book is a song, in a sense. And so just repeat that over and over and over again. So Judges uh, portrays this ugly, downward spiral uh, in the life of Israel. I remember. I think glitched out on me. Fun. Um, So it's this downward spiral. Um, Daniel Block says, the theme of the book of Israel is the canonization of Israelite society during the period of settlement. So Israel comes in and instead of uh, Canaanites becoming Israelites, the Israelites become Canaanites. And trust me, if you've read the last chapter of Judges or the last two chapters of Judges, you would agree with that summary. Um, I do not recommend you read it to your children. Certainly not at bedtime. If you're going to do it, do it at the beginning of the day. Uh, But not right before bed. You get to the end of the book, what do you find? You find that the tribe of Benjamin is indistinguishable from the surrounding nations. By the end of the book, Benjamin is as disgusting. I mean, the story of the Levite's concubine, probably the 
Second grossest thing that happens in all of scripture. And, and that's how bad it gets. That's how bad Israelite society is by the end of the book of Judges. So even though God's delivering them out of their trouble, his, um, they are still not out of the, the frying pan, right? They're still very much experiencing the problems that they had before. So how do I talk about a book like this with so many judges in it? Well, I'm going to talk about themes and then I'm going to talk about individual judges. And here's what I'll do. By the end, if you want me to keep going, I'll talk more about judges and I can carry it over to next week. Or we can take a straw poll and we can move on to the next book of the Old Testament. So we'll just see how you feel by the end of this. I'll know how the lesson went if you say more, more, please. Um, Okay, so themes, themes of the book of Judges. Uh, Big theme of the book is disputed rest. So the land has rest during the careers of the first judges. You read chapter 3, chapter 5, and chapter 8. In all of those, the the judges bring rest to the land. But here's what happens after chapter 8. Even though the judges come and even though they deliver, the book never again says the land had rest. So after the first three judges, chapter 311, 330, 531, and 828, there's still deliverance. They still get rescued, but it no longer says there's rest for the land. Um, God is is gracious at first. What does he do? He uses the judges as instruments to give rest. Sometimes they get 40 years of rest. Sometimes the land gets 80 years of rest, but eventually the rest stops. Eventually the land doesn't have rest anymore. Eventually, they just have a cessation of conflict for a while. But it never says the land rests anymore. Um, Ralph Davis has a really good commentary on Judges. I recommend if you like reading homiletical commentaries, that is commentaries that are based on sermons, read Ralph Davis. Has anyone read Ralph Davis at all? Anybody? I love Ralph Davis. Ralph Davis came and spoke at, RT, uh, at RTS before. And I remember one time he preached at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Jackson. And he taught out of his Hebrew Bible. And you could tell he was making up his translation as he went. Because um, he just knew his Hebrew Bible so well. Um, so Ralph Davis is wonderful. But here's what Ralph Davis says about these seasons. He says these seasons of rest that, he, that God gives to Israel during the time of the judges are, are God's way of showing the grace of God that's meant to lead us to repentance. So he's not, he's not giving them his approval when they experience rest. He's just simply saying, I'm going to be kind to you. And that's the grace of God that's meant to lead you to repentance. Um, so think of, maybe think of the rest that way. Um, another theme of the book is this, generational degeneration. Um, the definitive text of Judges, I think, because it summarizes the whole book, is Judges 2.10. And the reason is because it's so repetitive. It says, All the generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Another generation arose who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Think about this. One generation, one generation, not two, not three. It wasn't even as slow as sort of the story I painted this morning in the pulpit. You know, I kind of was saying, you know, over a number of years, you forget the gospel. This is one generation and boom, they've fallen off the cliff. Um, So this is a sobering 
the book of Judges is a very sobering warning to all generations that we are one generation away from losing God and losing the gospel. We're not many generations away. We're not on a slow drift down a river that eventually will culminate in us someday far away going down a waterfall. But it is, it is a waterfall right there. And we need to be paddling now. And Judges is kind of modeling that for us. Now, something I'm going to bring up, because it's in the book of Judges, um, and just because, I, I don't know, I'm feeling like being a little bit of a rabble rouser. Uh, you know, sometimes it's fun to sort of like break, break our ideas we have about the book of Judges. I will not ask for a show of hands, because I'm not interested in um, embarrassing or anything like that. Uh, but... I can ask this. Who has heard of the fleece of Gideon and been told they should make decisions using a fleece? <laughs> yes. All right. As a fellow, as someone who has himself been fleeced, I will be happy to use myself as the, as the, uh, the guinea pig here or whatever the metaphor I need to use is. <laughs> but I want to talk about Gideon and his fleece because it comes up in this, in the book. Ah, so funny. I didn't put any references to the actual text here. So one of the things you find when you see that Gideon is raised up by God, he's a very cowardly guy. Uh, God speaks to him, tells him what he's supposed to do. And what does he do? He kind of trembles and he's like making excuses and he really doesn't want to do this, uh, this thing that God tells him to do. God says, you know, basically you're going to lead an army and you're going to smash, uh, smash the Philistines. And so Gideon goes, well... God, if you really are going to do this for me, then, and then he lays out the fleece and he says, you know, make the water, make the dew appear on the ground, but not on the fleece. And then the next day he says, make it appear on the fleece and not the ground. You know, he's doing these kind of, these making these very unusual requests of God and God humors him, right? God gives him what he's asking for. And here's just what I want to say. Gideon is not an example of decision-making. Right. <laughs> like on any, on any planet, you would not go, yeah, be like that guy. Make decisions like that guy. Gideon knows clearly what he's supposed to do. God speaks to him clear as day. So clear that he knows exactly what he's going to ask God, are you sure about, right? So he's somebody who has the revealed will of God in hand, now, we make the mistake of thinking that because God obliges him, that there must be something normative about this. There must be something normative about us saying, hey, God, if you want me to do this, then make this work out. Or, God, if you want, you want me to make this decision, then make this happen. And we sort of make our, our decisions that way. But Gideon is humored by God. He's not acting from faith because God already told him what to do. God already modeled for him. In fact, he's an anti-model. He's an anti-model for how to make decisions. He's kind of like the other judges. He's just as disappointing. He's really disappointing like the other judges. So laying out a fleece is not how God intends for you to make decisions. How does God intend to make you, to help, uh, for you to make decisions? He intends for you to listen to his revealed will. So just like he does at first, he hears the revealed will of God. And what he should have done was heeded God's revealed will. And that would have been a short narrative and less interesting. And we wouldn't be talking about it today. But it would have been more, more faithful, right? He would have just done what God said. And the same thing for us. God has already told you the basics of decision making that you need to make in your real everyday life, right? Um, 
you know, I think of it sometimes as when was the time in life where I thought, you know, I need to lay out some kind of fleece. You know, I, I don't remember a specific moment where I made a massive decision because of a fleece. But I do remember at one point thinking, Lord, if you want me to do this, then cause it to work out. And I think in my head, that was my version of a fleece. Um, but here's the thing. Sometimes you make decisions about whether to get married, Right. How are you supposed to make decisions about how to get married in your life, right? If you can't have a fleece, how do you decide who, how to get married or who to marry? Um, I used to know guys, by the way, they would go to, this is Christian College in, in McPherson, Kansas. And the guys would say, i go to a girl and be like, hey, God told me that I'm supposed to marry you. <laughs> like, that kind of works in some contexts. It actually does kind of work. It's very clever. Uh, it is blasphemous if it's not true, um, but very clever. But sometimes the girl would be like, God did not tell me that. So, you know, a lot of disappointed guys who were like, that was my only line. That's all I had. Um, but yeah, let's say you want to get married. How do you make a decision about whether to get married? Well, the Bible tells you, right? God gives you directions about who to marry, about how to make decisions about getting married. What does he say? He says, if you're a Christian, they need to be a Christian too. Uh, they need to be somebody of the opposite sex. You got to say that in 2021. Um, they can't already be married. <laughs> Boom, right? <laughs> God has given you direction. God has told you what you, what you should do. Um, there's no need for a test. There's no need for a fleece. Um, you're thinking about taking a new job. How do you make decisions according to God if you can't lay out fleeces, right? Well, God tells us in scripture that we should do work that's noble, right? It shouldn't be evil. Um, it should meet your family's needs. It should, or at least it should get you on the path to having your family's needs met. Um, there's no need for a fleece. And sometimes decision making is as simple as what would you like to do? But I think sometimes we just feel like we can't carry the burden of what would you like to do? That is just too much. We don't want to. We almost want to have somebody else to sort of pin our life decisions on. And so that ends up happening. Um, life is full of these common sense decisions that sometimes I think we overly complicate and we lay our indecisiveness at God's feet and we say, well, God didn't show me or God didn't tell me. Um, really good book. Actually, two really good books if you're interested in the subject. If, you, if you're interested in a short read, Kevin DeYoung has a book called Just Do Something. And I know that we have multiple copies in, the, uh, in the, the church library. So you could pick one of those up. Really little book, easy to read, nice and fun read. Uh, there's another one by Gary Friesen. It's a few years old now. It's called Decision Making in the Will of God. I have a copy. I might have more than one copy. Um, and I would recommend that if you want more information than sort of the mockery that I just gave you. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's that. I'm trying to see what time it is. Okay, still got time. I'm moving so fast because Judges is, is a long book and it's got a lot of stuff in it. And I'm going to hit some of the highlights. Also, all I'm really doing right now is I'm picking all the stuff from the Judges that might leave you mad at me when Sunday school is over with. So here's one that could leave you mad at me or at least you could vigorously disagree with me and I'll understand. Um, and that is the episode of Jephthah's Daughter. What happens to Jephthah's daughter? Does anyone remember what happens to poor Jephthah's daughter? Dies. All right, Jephthah's daughter gets put to death. So that's that's one version of uh, that's one answer, one possible answer. Yes. I mean, well, I mean, doesn't like Jephthah like 
I mean, I've never read this, but I mean, basically, doesn't like he about the Lord, like you know, I mean, say like you know, Lord, if you like you know, I mean, he makes it about the Lord, saying like you know, Lord, if you will help me like crush you know. I mean, like, well, basically, if you help me crush my enemies, I mean, like, doesn't you say, like, whatever like, comes in the, out of the door of my house, I will give you, you know, as a burnt offering, mm-hmm. sacrifice to you. Yeah. And unfortunately, like, for him, though, like, I mean, because, you know, what what he probably thinks is, like, hey, you know, like, you know, if my dog comes out, like, you know, what's the first thing, like, you know, if that comes around the door, his dog, he obviously <clears> thinks <throat> that, but then, like, who comes out, you know, his daughter. And he's like, oh, my daughter, you have ruined me. I mean, I've yes. been about the Lord, and I cannot break it. He's not happy. He's not happy when his daughter comes out. So, so in verse 29 of Judges 11, it says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah to Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. So, Spirit of God comes upon Jephthah. He travels from one location to the other. And it says, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Right after, he, right after the Spirit of God comes upon him. He says, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So, first thing just to say, does anyone know in the pagan world, if you wanted to curry the favor of the gods, when would you offer the sacrifice? Before. You would do it Before. Right? You say, I'm trying to buy the favor of the gods, so I'm going to put this animal to death or my own child to death, and then you'll bring the rain, or then you'll bring victory. And when does he say he's going to offer up the burnt offering? After the battle. So we already have, one of the narratives around Jephthah is he's become so paganized by the surrounding culture that he thinks that child sacrifice is potentially an okay thing to do. But we already see here, he's diverging, whatever this is, he's diverging from the way the pagans do these things because he's going to give this thing, whatever it is, as an offering after the battle. <clears throat> I'm just setting that aside. <clears throat> so many people think Jephthah's daughter was burned alive as a sacrifice. That tends to be, I'll take hands, I'll take hands. Who thinks Jephthah's good daughter got burned alive as a sacrifice? I know no one, no one wants to raise their hand because they think I'm about to shoot it down. But tell me if you really think. I always thought Jephthah's daughter gets burned alive. I'm going to make the argument that he didn't. So here, I'm going to give you the argument. All right. The narrative around Jephthah is this. This is how bad Israel got. Even its heroes were basically pagan. And they thought that God required even a child sacrifice like the pagan gods. Right? They think, I made the vow. I've got to do it even if it's an evil vow. So I'm going to give you six reasons why I think Jephthah did not kill his daughter. Okay, one is this. Jephthah is mentioned in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, in the hall of faith. He is seen as an example of faithfulness, right? And I find it very challenging. I'm not saying impossible, but I find it challenging to square the faithfulness of Jephthah with his child sacrifice, which is seriously like one of the worst things you could imagine a person doing. Yeah, Jan, Jake. Are there other Jephthahs that Hebrews might have been? No. I mean, if you read, yeah, I don't think so. so what's that? Repeat the question for the sake of the... Uh... Oh, yeah, she asked, could it possibly have been another Jephthah? Good question. Um, if you read the description of him in Hebrews 11, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, 
So that's the first thing. You've got to square this with the praise that's heaped upon him in Hebrews 11. Now, look, in Hebrews 11, every person that gets mentioned in there is a sinner. But you also don't have like the worst kings of Israel making the list, right? He's generally picking noble examples of faithfulness in Hebrews 11. You do have David. That's true. But David's also an example of repentance for us. So Jephthah, not so much if he does this. Um, but yeah, that's true. We have a, we have a hall, the hall of faithful in Hebrews 11 is also a hall of sinners. So there's a, there's, this is not a knockdown drag out argument. Um, I would also say this right before Jephthah makes the vow, the spirit of God rushes upon him. All right. Again, it's, it's hard to imagine the Holy Spirit would empower a man mm. to make a vow that is so rash and stupid, mm-hmm. right? Doesn't mean it, doesn't mean it's impossible, but it just is another sort of brick in the wall in terms of really do we want to go this path and how we read this. Um, calling his daughter being offered as a permanent virginal temple service, burning a burning offering would have been, because I'm going to suggest that's what he did. His daughter ends up being a virgin for the rest of her life in service in the temple. That's what I believe happened to her. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make the argument from the text for why that's the case. But calling that a a burning off, a burnt offering would have been a way of expressing the seriousness of the vow. Um, In fact, my my Hebrew professor, Miles Van Belt, suggested that he never intended to, to sacrifice an animal because even back then people's animals didn't live in their houses. Even then, Jephthah would not have expected an animal to come out of the door of his house. Interestingly, when I lived in Kansas, I used to deliver furniture. And I delivered furniture to a house that had animals, like barnyard animals in the living room. Like walking through the house. I'm not joking. It was awesome. It was it was a goat. There was like a goat just walking through. And they had the house open. And there was like dirt in the house. and you know, it's just, uh, if that guy had said, whatever comes out of my door, I'm going to sacrifice it. And yeah, it probably would have been the goat. The goat's going to die. But, um, Jeff, that even in this time, they didn't have animals living in their house. They were clean people. They, they didn't, they didn't want to have dirty houses. So they didn't. Um, he almost certainly expected someone in his house would be devoted to God and that his, and he did not, it seems that he did not expect that his only heir would be the one to come out. It does seem that's the case. That's what I'm going to argue. Um, but anyway, calling it a, a burnt offering doesn't necessarily mean that actually she was put to death and burnt and set on fire. So he was trying to devote his wife. <clears throat> maybe. Maybe he was like <laughs> Jephthah's wife. <laughs> um, so I pointed this out already. This is not a divine bribe. This is not the, the pagan method, right? He's not doing it in the order that the pagans would do it. Instead, this appears to be a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving or a sacrifice of devotion. Not a pagan sacrifice. Um, you have this other reality. Pagan. Uh, pagan. Jephthah's daughter's willing. Um, very odd if that's a death sentence. You know, she's resigned to it. She, she makes a statement at one point where she says, okay, basically. Um, again, hard to square that with a death sentence. In fact, another part of this is actually how she does react when she finds out what's happening. It says Jephthah's daughter mourned her virginity. It's very explicit in saying that. And again, like, 
I know we live in 2021 and we live in a humorous, sexualized society. And I remember as a teenager thinking, boy, I really hope I don't die before I get to have sex. I remember joking about that as a teenager. But if you were his daughter and you just found out that you were going to be put to death by being burnt alive, would your first reaction be, but I haven't had sex yet? Like, I know I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit trying to be funny, but I'm kind of not. Like, is that really what goes through a human being's head right now? And the answer is no. That is not what you walk the hills mourning for. You're mourning the fact that you're about to be burnt alive. That's what you're mourning. And she doesn't. And I think the fact that she mourns her virginity expresses what actually she ends up going through. I will also say this. There's precedent for putting your own child in lifelong service to the temple. Can anyone think of someone who does that? Hannah does it, right? Little Samuel in his cute little priest outfit, the cutest little (laughs) cuddliest little cute. Can you just imagine a little tiny baby in his little cute priest outfit? Little Samuel. And that was also in fulfillment of a vow. So anyway, all that to say, there's precedent for everything that, that, that I'm going to suggest here. Um, he, is, he serves lifelong. Ultimately, what does Jephthah do? It says in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 39, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. Um, think about this. It's being written in the past tense. It's being written by somebody mere years and years and years later after Jephthah. And what does he say? She never knew a man. That's the vow. The vow is not that she's burnt alive. Um, she never knew a man. That's the vow in action. Um, <clears throat> this would be distressing, by the way. You see a lot of mourning and you see a lot of really upset parents in this passage. And you see an upset daughter in this passage. And you see upset friends in this passage. Can anyone think of a very specific reason, specific to Jephthah's family, why this would be so upsetting? She's his only child. Jephthah's line stops. Jephthah's line stops with her. And so here she is, a young woman who could have children. She could carry on the family. And yet, because of this vow, Jephthah's family is gone. They no longer exist. Now, I don't know if you find that very, uh, very convincing. Maybe you read back through the passage, decide for yourself. Um, but for me, very eye-opening, at least, to consider uh, the possibility. Uh, now, I want to do one more thing. Uh, do I want to do it? Sure, do it. I'll, do it. I'll go ahead and do it this week. I'll do it this week. I won't, we won't slip it into next week. I'm going to do Samson. Samson. All right. So I'm going to do the same thing with Samson. You guys are going to either think that I'm crazy and never come back again, or you're going to be like, whoa. Uh, (laughs) I think Samson gets a bad rap. Um, Because if you look at who the judges are, what are the judges doing? They're God's instruments of deliverance to picture Christ for his people. And so each time, even though they are sinners, what what does God do? He raises somebody up and he delivers God's people. And... Um, just tell, just spit out. What are some of the problems with Samson? He's got an anger management. He needs to go to anger management. All right. The guy's got a temper. Ego. Ego. All right. He's full of himself. Thinks he can just tear the gates off a city. Lust. What's that? Lust. lust. So he's a very lust-filled guy. Yes? 
Well, wait, and it also he basically like marries, she tries to marry someone who's not an Israelite. All right, so he's trying to marry somebody who's not an Israelite. All right, that's enough. We can work with that. All right. Um, so here's what happens. He does marry a Philistine. If you go to the list of nations that are forbidden for the people of Israel to marry, are the Philistines on the list? Yeah. Are you sure? They are not on the list. And I can tell you why. Because they didn't exist when the list was given. The Philistines were the sea people. The, sea, the, the Philistines came from the Aegean Sea. And they were called the sea people. And they came into the land. They are not Canaanites. The Canaanites are forbidden for the Israelites to marry. Canaanites are not. Or sorry, Philistines are not. Something else you also notice. What does David do? David takes shelter with the Philistines. He's even got mighty men who are Philistines. Um, now, that doesn't mean the Philistines are, are their friends. That doesn't mean the Philistines are, are awesome. But what it does mean is that they're not off limits in the same way the Canaanites are. So I'll just throw that out there. Go to the list of the forbidden nations, which I neglected to write the reference for. I'm very sorry. I have checked and double-checked this to make sure I'm not saying something bad. It's true. <laughs> the Philistines aren't on the list because the Philistines aren't in the land yet when the list is given. Um, Another thing that, that Samson gets, gets uh, uh, knocked for, uh, he dishonors his parents, right? He doesn't respect his mom and dad. Um, is that really the case, though? What does he do? When he sees this woman that he wants to marry, he asks for her hand in marriage. Who does he go to? He goes to his parents. Um, let's just put it this way. Let's say she's not off limits. What does it say about the women of Israel that he said, there is no one suitable among my people? We interpret that, I think we go, nobody's hot enough around here, right? We just read Samson that way, right? There's nobody hot enough among the people of Israel. But is, if you look at the description that he gives of this woman, he says if you, the word that he uses is noble. He uses the word noble, upright, righteous, honest, straight. These are, this is the word that he actually applies to this woman that he wants to marry. So he sees something good in this woman, that he does not see among his own people, that he doesn't see among the tribe of Dan. Because that's, that's, that's who Samson's people are. They're the tribe of Dan. And then sometimes we think, ah, see, he just saw this woman and he decided he wanted to marry her based on looks. That's how we know that he's a lust-filled, you know, kind of a, kind of a stallion kind of a guy. Um, but actually, he goes and speaks with the woman. He gets to know this woman. So this is not just a relationship that's based on looks necessarily. And then also you notice that his parents accept his answer. Um, and Samson does not marry against his parents' wishes. So there are a few things in that narrative. Sometimes they get, they get pointed out. And I just think, are we being fair to Samson? Like, this doesn't mean that I'm going to try to go through the whole narrative of Samson's life and go, see, he's actually sinless. He's actually fantastic. But we might be picking on him in ways he doesn't deserve. We, I think we see things in Samson that we have decided that are there. And I think it's because maybe we've heard him preached before or we've seen it ourselves or we kind of have just said, I see what kind of guy this is, you know, and we read Samson like this. Um, you have the lion episode, right? Um, everybody says, oh, he violates his Nazarite vow. You're not allowed to touch a dead body if you're a Nazarite. He goes over and he touches this lion and he takes the, takes the honey out of the lion, right? Numbers chapter six has this Nazarite vow that says he's not supposed to come near a dead body. If you read Numbers chapter 6, it's not saying you can't touch a dead animal. 
It's saying you can't touch a dead person. And touching a dead person would, in fact, be a violation of his Nazarite vow. But think about this. If you're not allowed to touch a dead animal, that's forced vegetarianism, right? He can never eat meat, right? Um, so it's too much to say that the Nazarite vow means you can't touch a dead animal. Now, he could touch a dead animal, and he touched the, the dead lion. Now, what's the deal with the lion, the, or with the honey? The honey is a sign of blessing, right? The honey is a sign of, fa- of God's favor. The honey is a sign of God's, uh, of God's uh, blessing on you. And so who are the th- two, does anybody know the two other people in the Bible who eat honey that we know of? John the Baptist. Jonathan. Yeah, Jonathan and John the Baptist. They are the two other people in the Bible that we have a record of eating honey. And Samson joins their their group. And this is not like, um, this is actually a good thing. This is actually a blessing. It's not a bad thing. Um, and certainly not a violation of his vow. Um, the riddle episode, right? He has a party at his house and he's got Philistines at his house. And if you remember, you know, he asks them all of these questions. And does anyone know sort of the accusation that gets leveled against Samson at the party? That this guy gets drunk, right? Samson's a drunkard too. He has a party. He gets drunk. Drunkenness, alcohol, is a violation of the Nazarite vow. So the passage never says that Samson drinks alcohol. It never says that Samson is drunk. It never says that he touches the stuff. So anyway, I'm just going to say the text doesn't even imply that he drinks alcohol. It does imply that, there is, that there's drinking going on at the party. But it would be a serious thing to charge a Nazarite with drinking alcohol. And they never say that he drinks. So again, I don't think Samson violates the Nazarite vow. Also, by the way, later on in Judges, when he actually does violate his Nazarite vow, his hair gets cut, what happens? The Spirit of the Lord leaves him, right? (laughs) But why would the Spirit of the Lord not leave him when he drinks alcohol or when he touches the lion? It's because he's not violating his Nazarite vow. So again, this is a guy, needs another chance. Now, his fiance betrays him. That's true. But why does she betray him? She betrays him because her family gets threatened. Her father is, uh, they're, they're, they're going to put him to death. They're going to burn his fields. And then what does Samson end up doing to the Philistines? He ends up doing all the stuff that, that they threatened to do to her family. Um, so it's really awful what happens to Samson in the episode with uh, his fiance. They don't actually get married there, but um, she's his fiance. Yeah. I keep referring to Samson's. Nazarite vow, that it was a vow made on his behalf by his family. Yeah. He had nothing to do with it. How in the world is he even bound by it? I never got the, that whole concept. Yeah. Anyway, you're bound by Adam's fall. Well, yeah, but still, this is kind of a his, violation of people's. <laughs> I'm going to keep going, even though I'm going to be going like three minutes over. I'm going to go for it, though. Um, you have the prostitute in, in uh, chapter 16. See, this guy's filled with lust. He stays with the prostitute. Does he? Does he sleep with the prostitute? He stays at her house. Does seem suspicious, especially if you've got Samson already figured out. You already know what kind of a guy this is. I know exactly what he will do when he stays there. Can anyone think of someone else who maybe stayed at the, same, at the home of a prostitute? Israelite spies stay at her house. I never hear any sermons about how lust-filled the Israelite spies are. 
because we assume the best about them, not the worst. We assume that they're being righteous, not unrighteous. Now, what is the typical thing you do when you go into enemy territory? You stay in the home of a prostitute because it's just the place that a strange man would go and stay and people expect it. Samson, of course, goes into enemy territory. He stays at her house. And then in the evening, what does he do? He comes out, tears the gates off the city and goes 40 miles to Hebron. So, and, and when you steal the gates of, an, of someone, by the way, you're taking their security. You're taking everything about them. You are leaving them exposed and open. And that's exactly what he does. He springs the trap, as it were, out of the house. And he ends up bringing deliverance to Israel. And also we know that God's spirit comes upon Samson. And wouldn't it be strange? I'm, I'm not saying it's impossible. But wouldn't it be strange for the spirit of God to come upon Samson right after he'd just been with a prostitute? I just... Some of this stuff, we, I feel like we need to, to think about the larger events that are going on here before we read this much into Samson's life. So the, the, you know, he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt in a way that the, that the spies do. Um, that doesn't mean that Samson's flawless, but, but it does mean that, that Samson is God's instrument in this time to rescue his people and to picture Jesus for his people. Because Jesus is the one who seeks a bride and delivers his bride and rescues his bride. Jesus is the one who defends the one that he loves. Um, Jesus is very much like Samson's. In fact, he's the one that steals the gates, breaks open the gates of the enemy. He's the one that breaks strongholds. Um, and Hebrews 11 actually ends up giving like, I think six or seven verses to listing off things that are unique to Samson. And in all of them, he's saying Samson is an example of faithfulness. I could say more, but I've gone over the very naughty of me. Uh, I hope the Sunday school teachers don't think this is a harbinger of things to come. Uh, I thought about doing this as a whole separate lesson. And instead I just sprinted to the very end. So please talk to me afterwards. There have to be questions. So Uh, Let me pray for us as we go. Father in heaven, I thank you for those who are teaching Sunday school this morning. Thank you for our teachers. I pray that the kids would be blessed. I pray that they would uh, hear things that would edify them, that they would take them with them this week, even as many of them return back to school. We pray you would be with us, Lord. Help us as Christians to be faithful and to obey all your commandments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.